everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Welcome, everyone. This is the Vanguard's monthly webinar. We are extraordinarily pleased uh, to have the legendary Tony Serra, um, an amazing attorney, um, with an amazing career of longevity and excellence. Um, I'm David Greenwald. I'm the founder and director of the Vanguard. I realize that most of you are not here to hear me talk, uh, but I do need to give a quick pitch uh, for an upcoming event. Uh, Coda, would you mind uh, sharing your screen? For sure. Here, let me turn that on. Hopefully you guys can see this now. All right. Um, so um, one of the great things about the Vanguard is uh, we are a nonprofit and uh, therefore we rely on uh, donors and fundraisers. And we have a great one coming up and we're really excited now that uh, People are getting vaccinated and we can do things in person again. Uh, we are going to have a gala in uh, September in Sacramento, uh, the Vanguard Justice Awards Gala. And uh, we have a guest speaker, uh, Curtis Briggs, who actually uh, works with Tony Sarah on uh, the Chief Stankowitz case. And he's going to be talking about uh, that wrongful incarceration. Uh, Chief Stankowitz has been uh, at San Quentin since the 1970s. And uh, actually, when we get into uh, our Q&A with Tony Serra, he'll be talking about that case. Um, so uh, tickets are $100 uh, to attend uh, the meeting. Um, and uh, Coda has posted the link in the chat. Um, actually, Coda, you posted it to only the panelists. So um, if you can post it to everyone, um, that would be great. Um, that would make more sense. <laughs> if you click the link, uh, you can sign up for it. It should be a great night. You get uh, so, some food, some drinks, and uh, we're giving out nine justice awards. Um, and, uh, and so you know, worthy people that uh, have done great things uh, for criminal justice reform uh, will be honored uh, for their work. Uh, so uh, hopefully some of you can sign up and attend and we will see you in person there.
Um, with, with that being said, um, Cody, if you can stop the screen share, uh, we will begin um, our uh, webinar today. So uh, welcome, Tony, Sarah. I'm uh, very pleased to um, realize that uh, people are interested uh, in, you know, criminal justice, and I'm uh, honored to be on your program. Well, thanks so much. Um, so, you know, one of the questions I, I have is, uh, you know, what continues to drive you to practice at this point in your life? Well, uh, you, what you're really saying is that you're a pretty old guy and what the hell are you, you know, still uh, trying cases for? The uh, truth is, yes, I'll be 87 this year. Yes, I have, you know, a calendar filled with uh, cases and court appearances. Uh, yes, I uh, have, uh, you know, the passion and lucidity. And what uh, drives me, I think, is that it's uh, a, a, a completely exciting time. My God, not since the 60s has there been so much civil unrest and protest and, you know, demonstrations and reform-oriented activity. Any young lawyer who comes into fruition in this era, you know, has a calling. It's not merely to make a buck. You know, it's idealistic and it is reform-oriented. And, you know, I have the experience. I've been trying cases almost back to back for almost 50 years. And so I don't want to forfeit that experience and knowledge. I want to participate. I want to be part of the protest. I want to be part of the current ideology that resists, you know, police brutality and, and uh, oppression and racism, etc. So the uh, short answer is it, it excites me. And uh, it, uh, there's a, still a profundity to what I do. And the end objective is always the same. It is to keep people out of steel cages. You know, that's what I do. What do you do, Tony? I try my best to keep people out of steel cages. So I still, you know, have that ideology and that passion for the adversarial uh, system of justice in this country. And the fire. <laughs> in the fire in the belly, as they say. <laughs> um, so uh, what sorts of cases do you have right now? Uh, I've got uh, the so-called pig head uh, case in Santa Rosa, one of the five people charged for you know, allegedly throwing a pig head on, on the police witness uh, house, but he didn't even live there and smearing a statue of a hand uh, with pig blood, et cetera. So that, that's a cost case. And that, that's a case that uh, will um, act, actually mature in August. That's when uh, we believe it'll be charged and it is charged as felony and there's five people. So uh, we have that. I've got a, what, what I do a lot of when I'm not doing political or, you know, cases pro bono for social 
you know, cause uh, motive is murder. I got hooked on murder, you know, to, to why it's, it's theatrical, it's dramatic, you know, it's an adrenaline rush. It's a purge of your physiology and your psychology. And, you know, there's nothing like holding up the knife. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the, the prosecution says that this is the knife that killed the victim. And we say that there's no blood on it. They say that there's no DNA on it. We say, therefore, it is not the knife that killed the victim. Something like that. It's exciting. And so I've, you know, sometimes I think maybe I'm just an adrenaline junkie and, and I like the excitement of court. But I, I have an awful lot of murder cases. Our office does, you know, political cases. I participate in many of them directly. And then I participate in many of them indirectly by strategizing with the younger lawyers. Um, so uh, looking back, um, what, what, do you, uh, what do you remember most? Like what case stands out the most for you? Well, when I was just starting, there was um, Huey Newton of the Black Panther Party, actually very brilliant, you know, guy. And uh, I used to hang out, let's just say, at the Black Panther office in Oakland and in San Francisco, actually sleep there at night because we were expecting police raids and I was to be a moderator or a witness or a dead guy at the door, you know. So uh, I met Yui and uh, that still, you know, I was very young. I was uh, respected by him and he was no racist. And, uh, you know, it was a murder case. He was really not guilty. It was a political motive retaliation against him and the party. And, uh, you know, we prevailed. And that was the first time that I had a case at a young age that caught national attention. And I served the Black Panther Party for about, you know, a decade doing a, a number of cases. So that's that was a big one. Uh, the Russell Little of the SLA, if you remember, he allegedly uh, uh, killed with Ramirez the uh, uh, Marcus Foster, um, a black uh, you know um, educator who wanted to have um, uh, uh, identification cards for you know poor people, an odd you know request from such a person. But uh, he was convicted and it was reversed. And on the retrial, there was an acquittal. Uh, that was, uh, you know, the uh, uh, big one, uh, allegedly the SLA, you know, oriented. Uh, I did NWLF, New World Liberation Front, uh, where, you know, they uh, were the bombers, dare I say, of, you know, the 60s, and they um, bombed uh, in many places, 
but they always had demands. They were demanding on one occasion that during the winter, PG&E give free electricity to poor people who couldn't afford it and were freezing. And if they didn't do it, then PG&E got bombed, which they did. You know, so uh, uh, that really is exciting. Ellie Nestler, the one woman that, you know, killed in court the, uh, the alleged uh, child molester, uh, just to listen to her, to be edified by how, you know, smart she became and what a public figure and a speaker, you know, uh, that was uh, a big one for me. Uh, just recently, the ghost ship, man, that, that, that was a big case to... to they ultimately have one person they're blaming the whole goddamn thing on and he was a tenant and he lived there with his wife and three kids you know and if he thought it was a fire hazard he certainly never was well you know would have had them there uh so that was a big one uh i don't know what you know i have lots of different uh cases uh, that uh, over the years have been uh, subject of media attention. Uh, some of those are um, have an ideological basis. Some of them uh, merely a person, you know, who's been wronged or uh, law enforcement or involved in misconduct. Uh, what I'm known as is a cross-examiner of uh, informants. That um, it's one of my uh, skills, one of my specialties to go after, from my perspective, perjurious informants who have infiltrated our legal system and they and their, you know, testimony, highly unreliable. They should be eliminated from the process. So lots of cases, man. You know, I, I'm a guy who's been back to back for 30 or 40 or 50 years. So uh, uh, I, I've been in, I've been in a lot of trials. So much to ask. Um, so um, I, I guess uh, one question I'll, I'll ask is how you decide which cases you want to take? There's a number of factors. I um, and money is never an issue. You see, I took a vow of poverty. I don't make money. I need enough money to support an office. Offices cost money. Uh, pay the rent, uh, secretaries, et cetera, et cetera. And I certainly will take fees, you know, to accomplish those pragmatic needs. But the the lot of lot of lawyers. <laughs> money hungry, you know, materialist lawyers. Uh, unless you come in with 50,000, you know, uh, put it on the table, they're not even going to talk to you. So that's not my uh, criteria. I want cases with social content and political content. I want cases where there has been uh, police misconduct or informant, you know, uh, uh, perjury. Uh, I want cases that will uh, manifest the ideology when it's a political type of issue of the uh, client. I want to be the agent of the client. I want to be his mouthpiece. I want to express his political, you know, views in the uh, legalese of the courts. So uh, uh, I, I'm easy. I, it's hard for me to say no to anyone, 
So nowadays I have a lot of young lawyers and they will initially interview, you know, a potential client, then report to me, hey, Tony, this is a good one. Let's go for it. And I will uh, have, you know, them as co-counsel in the case. You know, one of the things that stands out, you know, reading uh, the history of like Huey Newton and the Black Panthers is how much they were, uh, uh, I mean, you said it yourself, you know, this is a bright young man at that time. And, uh, uh, you know, he had a lot going for him and he was really destroyed by the government as was that whole movement. Um, and so you were really standing in between uh, the government and kind of political oppression at times. Well, it, it's rather deep because the, there's been, in my, I don't know, 60 years of practice or whatever it's been, the uh, image, uh, the actuality of racism in the courts. So the Blacks, you know, and the Asians and the Hispanics, the, the gay, the lesbian, the transgender, uh, they have all been disparaged. They, you know, everyone knows there's one law, you know, for the whites and there's a law, let's call it for people of color. There's one law for the rich and there's one law for the poor. You know, uh, uh, those are things that we have uh, lived with and uh, the, the Black Panthers, you know, uh, in that generation raised their, you know, their angry semantic fist. They wanted change. They wanted reform. And really, it's been 50 years uh, since the magnitude of public demonstration for police reform, you know, for law reform, for equality has been, you know, so poignant. Uh, right now is the time. We've got Black Lives Matter. That is a huge event. That is transparency. That is something that attacks police brutality. You know, we've got the Asians raising finally, you know, their anger at the way they have been treated. Remember, the Blacks came as slaves and the Asians came as work uh, uh, slaves, so to speak. And they've been discriminated and they have been kind of, uh, uh, how would I call it, never, never given fair, you know, justice under our system of law. So, you know, all of that is uh, rapidly changing. And we see on the forefront now, you know, demonstrations against police brutality. We see for the first time, you know, police being prosecuted for their misconduct you know, for, for their, you know, Black Lives Matter, for killing Blacks, for killing, you know, people of color, for killing uh, people with uh, limited, you know, mental abilities. So um, uh, it, it, it's just a time that is ripe for reform, very similar to what the Black Panthers stood for uh, approximately 40, 50 years ago. Um, and, and you've, you know, had the privilege of living both through the 60s and, and through now. And so, you know, what kinds of commonalities do you see between now and the 60s? And why do you think we're gonna get things right now uh, when we didn't get it right 50 years ago? Uh, 
Now, in the 60s, there was the confluence of politics and, and I'm going to say aesthetics and spirituality. You see, the 60s gave birth to music that still endures for all of us deadheads that want to, you know, uh, uh, spectate or participate. Uh, the 60s, remember how Berkeley demonstrations, uh, SF State demonstrations, there was uh, public protest, there was uh, public anger. Uh, we had, um, dare I say, um, LSD, which changed the mentation of so many people. Make love, not war. You know, tune in, turn on, drop out. Uh, those were adages of that time. Who now remembers Timothy Leary, you know, and what he stood for? Before he kind of went off the edge, he was articulate. He was a leader. He was, you know, professorial. He was respected. So uh, we had our gurus. It was a, a different orientation. But the big thing now is these phones that take, you know, pictures. We have, you know, finally a window into the police brutality. You know, we see, you know, what they do. We see them, you know, shooting innocent people, killing innocent people. See, that was always kind of hidden. That was protected. That was, you know, shielded. The, the public was not outraged. We're outraged now. We're demonstrating at every level. This is, you know, it's a good time to be a, a civil rights type lawyer. It's a good time to protest. It's a good time to go against the government when the government is, you know, uh, uh, how would I call it, uh, un unfair, uh, overzealous, uh, um, uh, uh, in a way, a step away from a form of totalitarianism. So, you know, lots, uh, lots of things are, are happening that are significant that parallel, but don't really replicate what occurred in the 60s. It, it was a different movement. You know, we, we, we don't have music, we don't have LSD, we don't have gurus, we don't uh, dance, we don't run around, you know, uh, in the park naked any longer. That was all, you know, part of the 60s, which is not present. But we do now have meaningful protests from, you know, the groups are, that are uh, discriminated and uh, it is uh, bringing reform, it's bringing change, it's bringing transparency. This is a fabulous time, as I said at the beginning, to be a young idealistic lawyer, because, you know, you're not going to be snuffed away in some kind of a big corporate setting and, you know, have a little desk and be on the computer all of your life. You, you can be 
part of the movement. You can be on the street. You can be a witness. You can be uh, someone who speaks out. This is uh, the calling and, you know, the true calling of the legal profession. Um, so we have a bunch of, uh, of our interns, uh, many of whom are going to end up going on to law school and become lawyers. Uh, what advice do you have for them? Okay. One of the things that I'm most proud of in terms of my own career is that those people with political ideology have accepted me. You know, the Black Panthers, they accepted SLA accepted me, the, the prison gangs I've represented, the Hell's Angels I've represented, and it goes on and on because I, as my career progressed, I was part of every movement. So, you know, that is something that uh, young lawyers now have the opportunity to participate in. There is movement out there. There is protest. There are, you know, uh, what would you call it? The, the, the common man has raised his fist. They won't tolerate the police, you know, brutality. They won't tolerate police misconduct. They, you know, demand sanctions. So this is new and it's exciting. And, you know, I, I believe that it attracts See, I see the young lawyers who are idealistic, and I think it attracts a lot of young lawyers who are altruistic. They're not in it for a buck. They're not materialists. They're not, you know, in my mind, parasitical on the system. They are, you know, going to be leaders. The lawyers should be leaders in terms of reform and change and justice. They should be, you know, every day of the week anti-racistic, you know, you can see it in the courts, just say one thing every day, loud and clear in the court, you know, and it will transform, so to speak, the entirety of the judicial system and its attitude, you know, toward the poor and, and the uh, 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 non-white races. Um, so... One of the people that, you know, I think has been tremendously victimized uh, is somebody that you're representing right now, uh, our, uh, one of our interns, uh, Roxana, uh, who uh, I believe is on here, um, it, uh, wrote a, a brilliant article uh, last fall on Chief Stankiewicz. Can you tell people about the, uh, that gentleman and uh, that case? Uh, Sankowitz is Native American. When he was young, uh, he was, I don't know what you want to call it, in a lot of dysfunctional households uh, taken you know, from his family and placed there. So at an early age, he was kind of a rebel. And at an early age, he was um, acting out a lot. So what occurred in this instance is that uh, there was a, um, in essence, now we call it a carjacking where the person, you know, was shot. 
and the evidence was very slim against him, mainly one person who was in the vehicle, who later, a, a, a young person, uh, who later recanted and said that he'd been coerced by the DA to point the finger, you know, at Sankowitz. So he was convicted, he was given death penalty. Uh, he um, has spent 44 years on death row. I think about seven of those, uh, uh, there were seven occasions, you know, that he was marched into the, uh, the chambers to die where there was last minute stays. He has always protested vigorously his innocence. And, you know, the, he never really got justice in the courts at any level. So recently, um, three of us and a great number of paralegals, but Curtis uh, Briggs, uh, and Alexandra, uh, and, and myself um, are, are working on habeas. I'm not an appellate lawyer, I'm not an appeal lawyer, I'm not a habeas lawyer, but I am a courtroom lawyer. So a lot of times, uh, even in habeas, you know, when I took over or when I when I went into the case, I was death qualified and I don't think the other two lawyers were. So um, it was going to be a retrial on the penalty phase. But then, you know, after a, a, a lot of appearances, a lot of argument, a lot of motions, the DA dropped the death penalties. But still, he's in their life without and he should be on the street. So we've gotten a lot of avenues here. We're appealing, you know, his sentence. We've uh, have a habeas corpus going. We have a pardon, you know, before the governor. Uh, we believe that he's factually innocent. He has uh, uh, certainly been a model prisoner, no problems while he's been in. And, uh, uh, you know, we're hoping to prevail. So the Sankowitz case is a case that involves the wrongful, you know, death penalty, a Native American, it involves uh, the, um, uh, uh, how would I call it? Uh, they switch guns on him on some other kind of an event, you know, so uh, there's some police misconduct involved. Uh, no lawyer ever really defended him. So the, the bar, you know, appointed lawyers in this instance uh, failed. So we've kind of taken it up as a cause case, and uh, we're hoping to get a positive ruling on habeas uh, or a pardon. And uh, we're, you know, praying that he'll be out soon. Just a massive miscarriage of justice. And, uh, you know, uh, the thing that, that always struck me was Alexandra's description that he kept writing and kept writing and nobody was listening and finally, people started listening and they started looking at his case and they're like, wow. Uh, no, one of his first lawyers said something in court that wasn't true about him and he punched him. You know, like, he was like, he was a young rebel, but he, but he blasted him right in court, you know? So everyone, oh my God, like, you know, this guy is a little bit uh, off, but not at all. He, he was the only one that saw that he was being railroaded. At that time, yeah, we all see it now. Um, and then um, the final question I'm going to ask, and then we'll turn it over to some audience questions. But 
Why do you think that racism plays such a pervasive role in the criminal uh, system even now? I've thought a lot about that. And I'm not a sociologist. It's really a sociologist kind of a question. This is what I think. Sadly, this country was founded, the early colonies, by white Christians. My God, blacks didn't vote. Women didn't vote. It was male chauvinistic to the core. And that has permeated, and I don't know what you wanted, the collective consciousness you know, and it brings about this ugly specter of racism. My God, we have elected a president, and uh, I'm now talking about Trump, you know, that stands for that antiquated proposition that white you know, Christians are what this country, you know, is founded on and what should be most, you know, dominant. So that in part, you know, describes why there's been racism. And what am I really talking about? More death penalty cases that are, you know, given to the poor, to the Hispanic to the black, not the white, more poor people, more people who have mental issues are given death penalty. And it's, uh, I think, because the white, this undercurrent of white, you know, superiority permeates our culture. You know, again, it's sociological. Let me give you a, a stark image of it. I've seen little black children, you know, beautiful, let's say poor, and they've got dolls and they're holding dolls and the dolls are white. You know, black children aren't even allowed black, I don't know, dolls. So I think it's something that uh, we have to wean out. We have to recognize. We have to change. There's so many things that in the legal system, let me just, you know, if you're going to have questions, let me end like this. You know, one of your questions was, that was posed previously is, what's your greatest disappointment? My greatest disappointment is we still have the goddamn death penalty. No, no civilized country has a death penalty. We have the goddamn death penalty. And if they put it up for vote, this country would vote it in as they did already in California. So, you know, that's a big one. We still have grand juries. That's a hangover from the days of England. We don't need grand juries anymore. Grand juries are secretive. There is no representation by the defendant. You know that... It, it is done, you know, been shielded from public. Uh, it is a separate proceeding. Uh, grand juries, you know, will indict, uh, as they say, a, 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 a donut if they are asked to. 
So uh, that has to change. We have engaged already, uh, sadly, in mandatory sentencing. We have stripped the judicial of their, you know, power. The mandatory sentencing, the judge has no discretion. The, 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 the legislature sets the, uh, the, the, the penalty. The prosecution picks the charges, you know, overcharging. Listen, you're facing 20 years after we overcharge you. And we'll give you a deal and give you 10, you know, or you can go to trial. So, you know, that, that has to change. The informant system is ruining our whole judicial criminal process. Informants lie. Informants will do anything for leniency. Informants give the government what they want. The informants, you know, will set up surreptitiously uh, cases that involve entrapment. Informants have to be eliminated from our system of justice. So that, you know, is a big one. Uh, I, I, I could go on and on, but, you know, those are the major issues of reform. And right now, they are all in the cutting edge. They're all being considered. They're being looked at. Everything, you know, is being re-examined. That's why I say it's a wonderful era to be a criminal defense lawyer who's interested in social and political justice. All right, Coda, <laughs> uh, you are up to read some of the questions. Uh, yes. All right. I would, I am reading one right now. So the first question I have for you is, do you believe there is a separate system and treatment of celebrities in California and mistreatment of anyone who may happen to inadvertently cross their path? I can I'm repeat not quite that. understanding the question. Is there with celebrities? Is there a different system for celebrities? Oh, question is, is there a different system for celebrities? There's a different system for whites. You know, there's a law for whites and there's a law for blacks in essence. Of, there's a different system for rich uh, versus poor. And of course, there's a different system for celebrities. <laughs> celebrities get more attention. They get more empathy. They uh, get more, you know, uh, reinforcement if they're celebrities in the mainstream. There's negative forms of celebrities. And obviously, those people don't get anything at all. But um, uh, we are a culture, sadly, that is uh, mesmerized by uh, celebrities. We um, honor movie stars. We honor athletes more than we honor educators, professors. You know, we have our value system inverted. We, you know, want to be like a celebrity. We want to uh, grow up, you know, and have uh, a celebrity status. I think that is a social disease. Thank you. Um, the next question I have for you is, Mr. Ser sorry, there's a couple spelling errors, sorry. Uh, Mr. Sarah, do you believe cannabis prohibition, uh, and then in quotes, uh, Jim Crow laws, plays a part in racism and profiling? 
All right, I'm not quite understanding, but it, you want me to comment on marijuana. Uh, I have a smoke uh, daily, except, you know, I, I, I uh, uh, I'm a tax resistor, so I, I go to prison every once in a while, every decade, it seems like. So other than when I'm in prison, I smoke marijuana every day of my life since 64, you know, and it's a bell curve. For some, they should never touch it. For others like me, it's medicine. It's, you know, a um, impetus for creativity. It is a spark that, you know, uh, uh, gives us insight uh, it is uh, an aesthetic uh, barometer of our, you know, uh, mentality. It leads, you know, to spirituality. In, and um, marijuana, thankfully, now is legal, so it can be grown and it can uh, be smoked. But I have always advocated for the uh, decriminalization of marijuana, not merely marijuana as medicine, but marijuana, it's epistemological. It, 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 you know, it gives you insight for those who it is good. There's people who should never touch it. They get paranoid, they get sleepy, they are couch potatoes. You know, that, that is a side effect for many, but then don't, don't smoke it. But uh, I, I think marijuana is something that uh, is here to, to stay, to benefit, in essence, mankind. It came at a time when it, it was needed psychologically by uh, the mass population. Uh, it is a, a remedy, you know, for for uh, lack of uh, uh, spirituality or aesthetic uh, uh, insight. So uh, I have nothing but positive things to say about pot. I, I Wonderful. Think the, I think uh, the question, uh, excuse me, Coda. Um, I think the question is uh, whether the prohibition against it um, is, is part of uh, racism. I've represented too many whites in the marijuana trade, marijuana business, marijuana cultivation. To say that it's racism, it could be racism in this sense. At a time where marijuana was uh, illegal, the I'm talking San Francisco mainly, but the black areas, Fillmore District in San Francisco, and you know East Oakland, the the blacks were selling. They're on the corner selling pot, and I said to myself, "What a beautiful thing." You know, they're, they're dispersing, we used to call it the sacrament, and they're making a living and, you know, no violence, no, uh, no crime uh, of theft or otherwise. And uh, the law enforcement came down on them, you know, 10 times worse than any white, took away their livelihood, took away, you know, their freedom. So in that sense, yes, it was racistic, but that was a minority of cases. Obviously the bigger cases are federal and federal still prosecutes. My God, I had, guy had about 500 pounds and he went through 
uh, Iowa. He was on his way to deliver it back east, and he, he they pulled him over just because he had an out-of-state license plate. He was a you know a, a, a pure um, uh, a bad stop, but the judge obviously said it was okay. But uh, that that guy uh, in Iowa, you know, we, we appeared. My lawyer, uh, I as the lawyer, and then the younger lawyer in my office, and the judge, who was a Harvard graduate, but a federal judge, you know, in, in Iowa, looked at us like we were representing, you know, the Mexican mafia or, you know, the, 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 the uh, uh, you know, the organized crime. She wouldn't hardly even let us talk in court. And uh, that guy ended up lucky, lucky. He only got two years. So the feds are still uh, in prosecuting in states that are backward from my perspective, in states that still outlaw marijuana, that they think marijuana is like heroin. I remember I did one case in Boston. It was a pot case. And they, they believed the marijuana was like heroin. You get addicted and you got to have it and you crave it and you commit crimes in order, you know, to support your habit. Well, that's all bullshit. They didn't understand. They didn't know. So there's been a lot of deliberate ignorance with regard to prosecution of marijuana. Let's hope now anyone in is let out. That's the way it should be. Anyone on parole or probation, it should be terminated. These people, you know, have been, uh, I don't know, martyred to a false belief system. And uh, I'm hoping that there'll be less and less prosecution uh, and there'll come a time when there's none. So, you know, uh, we thought under Obama that was going to occur. It did not. Under Obama's uh, reign, and he did a lot of good, but uh, marijuana still was prosecuted vigorously. And it's not until very recently that so many states have declared it, you know, uh, to be legal or legal with limitations, like maybe licensed or things like that. So uh, we see rapid change in that area for which I am grateful. Coda. So my next question, uh, what do you think is the role of journalism in criminal justice reform? As a defense lawyer, what qualities do you look for or value in a given article when we're covering a trial? I, I'm different than most lawyers. I embrace, you know, the First Amendment. I have always shared every case, you know, with the press. I do press conferences. I do press releases. I even allow the defendant on occasion to be at a press conference to speak. I think the role is very significant. And there's no way we should have lawyers who are ever gagged. And I've been gagged in cases you know, where you can't talk to the media, you can't talk to anyone about the case. So uh, I believe that there should, the, the public has a right to know. 
just there's no justice that is behind closed doors you know not unknown and unrevealed that is a form of totalitarianism we want the press there we want the public to know we want the case to be thought about this uh, the ramifications the potential punishment the uh, evidence you know for and against that causes no harm and there it makes a more transparent society it makes a, a society that is freer and opener so you know lots of uh, the old-fashioned lawyer no comment no more comment you know defendant has nothing to say well that's bullshit so you know I, I've always embraced the them uh, encouraged them to come to court you know, giving them uh, material that uh, is allowed in terms of discovery or uh, motions. So uh, I'm one who cooperate always uh, with uh, the press, you know, with uh, uh, the uh, uh, so-called, you know, uh, right to have um, a free and open uh, uh, court system. As a journalist, I approve of this message. (laughs) I have a a related question for the next one. Uh, I think this is also from one of our reporters. Um, The question is, uh, if you have any advice for journalists covering judicial cases, especially when it comes to bias. A journalist should not go into, I don't know, any form of an event with preconceived, uh, I don't know, uh, judgments and just, you know, and thoughts. Uh, A bias, you know, is such a thing that uh, thwarts uh, uh, clarity. Uh, uh, I think that part of the journalistic or the reporter's uh, requirement is to vacate as much as he or she can bias from their perspective so that they can report objectively and not be partisan. And I'm saying that even when, you know, for some reason in the case, I have the benefit of the journalistic perspective. I think in order to be credible, you must be objective. In order to be credible, you can be nonpartisan. In order to be credible, you should have no bias. All right, Koda. Sounds good, thank you. Um, So another question, um, what does justice mean and look like in America right now? And what is the biggest change that you would ask for? as far as America and justice. The Native American has somewhat of a slogan, at least the ones I have represented, and I represent Native Americans uh, a lot and in death penalty cases. Uh, The Native American says that white man's justice uh, 
is just us, meaning just for whites. And that Native Americans get no justice. There has to be fundamental change. There has to be respect, you know, for all races. In order to better the system, we have to eliminate racism. We have to eliminate the the, the vulnerability of poverty and mental issues. And uh, those, you know, I've already talked about getting rid of the death penalty and the grand jury and informants and mandatory sentence and et cetera. But those are also aspects of change to make it a better system. And who are, you know, the semantic foot soldiers in this ordeal? It's the lawyers. It's up to us to do it. We can't, you know, shut our mouth. We can't look the other way. Oh, we're making a big buck so we don't give a shit. No, it has to come, you know, from the inside out. The outside protests, the outside gives us direction. The outside, you know, gives us support. The outside provides the cause. But the lawyer is the one that has to articulate and effectuate the issue. So it, it is something, you know, that um, is a challenge uh, for us and something that has to be done. All right, last question. Um, for this next one, I'm going to cherry pick Cecilia's. Uh, what do you think needs to be done to protect voter rights across the United States? Voters' rights? Yeah, what do you think needs to be done to protect voters' rights in the U.S.? This is a subject matter not uh, uh, within my expertise, but uh, where, and like I think, What's presently occurring is there's uh, uh, conditions uh, placed on being able to vote uh, and a, uh, you know, um, gerrymandering of districts in order to uh, perfect certain uh, voting perspectives. Uh, I think that uh, any limitations have to be eliminated. I don't think that you uh, have to show, you know, uh, your, I don't know, pedigree as an American. I think everyone uh, has a right to vote. I think that that right uh, is uh, something sacred to a democracy. I think that any impediment has to be eliminated. I think that there is, as we speak, movements in both directions in various states. Some, you know, to preclude certain segments from voting. Others, you know, adamantly desiring to include everyone. So uh, it's uh, it's something that is an eyesore for a so-called, you know, democracy. It is something that. Uh, has to be addressed. Uh, it's not particularly my um, uh, specialty, however. All right. Well, I, I want to uh, thank Tony, Sarah, 
so much for coming out um, and uh, sharing your, your expertise uh, with us today and your passion. Uh, it, it, it is amazing after, you know, 60 years of this work, you, you know, you still have this fire uh, going uh, for this stuff. That, that, that just blows me away. Here's what I think. I think anyone who believes in what you're doing it lasts a lifetime and you have the fire, you know, if you believe in it. When you're rushing into retirement and believes that you, you, you didn't have a sufficient, you know, uh, ideology to sustain you. So um, I'm making analogy to famous, you know, musicians that uh, are still composing it in their 80s and doing some of their best work. You never know. Sometimes your best work is in your 20s. Sometimes your best work, and I'm talking about, you know, serving society, is in your 80s. So uh, don't uh, uh, give up until, you know, uh, the last uh, battle is won. Well, I want to thank you again for coming out. I also want to thank our audience. Um, I want to give one more pitch uh, to our event um, coming up in, in September with Curtis Briggs. He'll be talking about uh, the Chief Stankiewicz case. Uh, and uh, your support helps us to continue programming like this, as well as our court watch and our daily news. Uh, so I want to thank everyone for coming out. And thank you so much, Tony, for, uh, for sharing uh, your experience with us. No, and thank you for being interested. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com. <laughs>